This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. I wasn't allowed to listen to that kind of stuff, okay? There was no listening to the House of Pain kind of nonsense. Well, it, it is a joy to be back together this morning. Um, I was thinking about the progression of, of messages for this retreat and, and thinking about the fact that sometimes when we think about drawing near to God, like we talked about last night, even when we want to, even when we are thirsting after God, we are immediately confronted with a problem. And that problem is our sin. Either the fact that we haven't been seeking God, and so it feels really awkward to just come to Him and and be aware, well, I, I know we haven't met recently, or that when we do come to God, we're aware of all of the things we've done since the last time we met with Him. And, and sometimes that is perhaps the biggest obstacle to drawing near to God. And even when we do draw near to Him, the biggest problem that confronts us, what do we do about our sin? How do we think about our sin? What does God want us to do? How do we draw near to a holy God in light of the fact that we are not holy, that we are sinful? I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about the topic of confession. So if you'd open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, and, and verse 9 in the first chapter of 1 John. So 1 John's not the Gospel of John, right? It's at the end of the Bible almost, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, then Jude, then Revelation. So 1 John, the letter that the Apostle John wrote to believers. And I, I want to ask that the Lord do something. I believe this verse is such a precious verse. It, 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 it summarizes in such a brief and beautiful way something that is proclaimed in all of the scriptures. But I, I'm praying that if you've never studied this verse, if you, maybe you've never even read this verse, I, I want to pray that, that you'll take this verse home with you. That this verse will be something that you'll carry with you, just like the memory of your dad up here with shaving cream on his head and you know, <laughs> orange all over, that, that you'll take this verse home with you, that you'll, you'll hold it with you, so you can memorize it even better, and that it will be your friend for the rest of your life. That's what I'm praying. I'm praying this verse will be your friend. Because for the rest of your life, you're going to have this experience of wanting to draw near to God and then thinking, but, but what about my sin? And I pray this, this verse will be like a key you can take out of your pocket and unlock the door of that problem again and again and again. So I, I, I pray that will happen. Let's read this verse together. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, bless the preaching and Lord, bless the remembering of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. I found something out about myself uh, this last year. I found out that I have a deep 
severe, profound, overwhelming detestion of rats. It is deep. It is psychological. It is profound. I don't know if it comes from watching Lady and the Tramp when I was a kid and that massive rat leaning over the baby's cradle and something stuck in my mind. I don't know if that's what it was. My mother actually reminded me recently that when I was a kid, there had like a baby. At one point, there had been a rat in my room that crawled where I was in the crib. And I woke up in the morning and she came in. And I told her there was a big bug in the room. They didn't figure out till later it was some kind of rodent. So maybe that's what it was. I don't know, but it is deep. Okay, it is deep. And one day, this last year, my wife called me and said, Isaac, my son Isaac, he saw something run into the crawl space in our garage under the stairs where we keep massive amounts of junk, all right? There is, you have one of these places in your house too. Massive amounts of junk. And we were redoing our shed and our garage and everything, so there's even more junk than normal. It's just been thrown in there to get it out of the way while we organize some things. And she said, you have to come home right now and deal with this. And I thought, oh my. And I, I wasn't yet aware of the revulsion, but I went there, and there I'm, I'm pulling back this curtain, and there is just everything you can imagine. My wife's saddle from her horseback riding days, and games, and bikes, and sleeping bags, and toys. I mean, just the perfect place. It's a rat's delight. So I'm thinking, I'm going to have to get in here, and at any point, this thing could come out at me. Now, I thought I was a courageous man. I've always thought I was a courageous man, but I realized there is a phobia of rats that is, it tugs away from every courageous ounce of my body. So I got a shovel. What I was going to do with it, I don't know, but I had a shovel and we had cordoned off areas. So if it went anywhere, it was going to have to go a certain direction. And I just started gingerly, I started pulling things out with the shovel and I would pull them back up and pull them back up and I was ready. I was ready. And at first, nothing happened. But I'm gingerly pulling things out of the sleeping bag, and here's this bike. I'm trying to get out with this shovel. And then I saw a little something scurry. And I thought, oh, good, it's a small thing. Maybe it's a mouse or a baby rat. Well, I thought that'd be a good thing. I don't know. But I thought, I can, I can handle that. It's small. It's a little thing. So still gingerly, but a little more bold. I went and I, I just tucking things out, and I back up, and my wife and daughter are over here not wanting to get close, but also laughing at me. And I'm, <laughs> I'm tucking things out. And then all of the sudden, this demon came running out. And there came out a sound out of my body I didn't know a man could make. It wasn't quite a scream. It was more like a hellish groan of terror and shock and revulsion. This beast came running across and in front of me, and I'm standing frozen with this useless shovel, and it scurried out and shoved itself under the air conditioning where it got in apparently, and out it went, out into the yard. And I was never the same. <laughs> There's something revolting in me when it comes to rats. Ugh, it is just grotesque. We found out later that there had been a litter of rats and we had to deal with it. It was just this nastiness thing in my, in my garage. And I thought, oh, this is, this is terrible. You know, you know what it reminds me of, though? It reminds me of sin. 
sin is the rodent of the soul. Sin is the rodent of the soul. And unlike real rodents that come from outside in, sin comes from inside out. Our heart, left to ourselves, apart from Christ, our heart is a rat's nest called sin, according to the Scriptures. And sinful defilement flows from it. But here, in this verse, we have some miraculous news. We have something that we can do with this defilement of our heart. And we are invited and called to run to the Lord, to call on His name, and to pursue something the Bible calls confession. The confession of our sin. Because, as the verse says, if I could put it in my own words, confession to God leads to forgiveness from God. Confession to God leads to forgiveness from God, and that means that the Christian life should be a race toward confession. A race toward confession. What do we do when we want to draw near to God? We're thirsty after Him, but we're aware we have neglected Him, or even when we draw near, we've done things that offend Him. There are rats of the soul, and we don't want to bring them close to God, and we know He doesn't appreciate them or approve of them. What are we to do? We are to confess our sins to God, because that always leads to forgiveness from God. There's really just two parts of this verse. I just want to break them down two parts very simply. First, there's a confession condition. There's a confession condition. You notice there, look down at your Bibles in verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins. This is a condition. If is an important word in this passage. The promise of forgiveness and cleansing that we see at the end of this passage is based on the condition that we see at the beginning. Now, now just to clear something out of the way, John is not saying that we have to be as articulate as Shakespeare or all-knowing as God, that unless we remember every single sin or unless we say it exactly right, that's not the point here. He is saying that those who want to experience the forgiveness of God must first admit that they need that forgiveness. They must say, I am a sinner. I have sinned. They must say that. And John is writing to Christians, if you know the rest of the book, he's writing to Christians who are in danger of being deceived about the condition of their heart. First, they wanted to say they could sin, but it wouldn't affect their fellowship with God. They thought that might be the case. Well, you can sin, but God doesn't really care. God's above such things. They thought, well, no, it, it's not really going to matter if we confess sin because God doesn't care that much about sin. And John is challenging this teaching. He says, no, a person who walks in darkness as their way of life, who lives content with the rat's nest of sin in their soul, who is fine with it, passive about it, that is not a person who is in fellowship with God. He says, no, that's not the right way to think. Just draw near to God and don't worry about sin. No, he says, that's not the right way to think. That's not the way God is. Well, then they came up with a different idea. They said, well, a person could claim they don't have sin. I, I, I don't have any sin. One said sin's not that big a deal. The other said, well, I don't have anything. I'm good. I'm clean. And he said, no, a person 
who thinks they have no sin is a person who doesn't actually know the Lord. God's light and his revelation has not come into their life. They're still living in darkness. She says, no, you, you can't think that way. You can't minimize sin. You can't say you have no sin. There's only one alternative. A Christian is someone who makes confession their way of life. A Christian is someone who makes confession their way of life. They don't ignore, they don't minimize, they don't act like sin is no big deal. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who acknowledges sin and confesses it to God. Now this this makes sense if we apply it to the rat analogy. What would we think of someone, maybe a, a child, who found a rat's nest and brought it into the kitchen and let them wander about? I'm not talking about these tame rats that some insane people have. I'm talking about, which you do, God bless you, just don't invite me to your house. But I'm talking about those nasty beasts that jump out of the sewer and that kind of a rat, okay? That's what I'm talking about. Imagine a person who brought that, having found it, into their kitchen, and they're wandering about on the plates and nibbling at the fruit bowl and getting into the cereal boxes and such things. And their mother comes down in the morning, and they're all happy. Look, I found some new pets. Isn't this wonderful? What does your mother say? Get this out of the house right now. That's how we ought to feel about sin. And acting as if it's no big deal is not the solution to it. Acting as if it's not there is not the solution to it. Mom's not going to go down and say, oh, interesting. Can you hand me the flour? I'm making some biscuits this morning. No, she's going to react immediately, aggressively. Get this out. That's what John's saying. The person who will not admit their sin is doing the same atrocity in the spiritual realm that that child will be doing in the kitchen. John is saying there is a condition to forgiveness. It's not just this automatic passive thing. That's a problem, I think, in this day and age. If people think at all about God, they think, well, God just forgives people. It doesn't really matter if we think we're sinners or not, if we confess our sin or not, or if we acknowledge that we're sinful, or if we try to stop sin. It's just God just ignores the whole thing. That's not what the Bible says about sin. It just isn't. And this passage says it's if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Now, what does it mean to confess our sin? I want to break this down, what this means, to confess our sin. First of all, it means listening. Listening. I'll give you like three quick steps. It means listening. It means we are listening and willing to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit pointing out the wrongness of something. Our conscience works together with the Spirit of God and reveals to us this is wrong. It's that feeling you get, I shouldn't have done that, or I should have done that good thing and I didn't. It's listening. We want to listen to the gentle prick of the Holy Spirit. And if we won't listen to him, we certainly will never agree with him and confess our sin. Imagine if a a rat expert came to your house and looking around, he told you, I see irrefutable evidence that you have pests in your home. Now imagine we said, no, 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 I I don't think so. I don't think I have a problem. I think I'm good. Too often that's what people do with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Whether he speaks through a verse of Scripture or through our conscience, through our parents, our pastors, our friends, we silence him, shh, go away. I don't want to think about what that means. Quiet. Or we distract ourselves with lunch or the next episode. Or trying harder. But trying harder is not confession of sin. 
David Allen says, if you keep God at arm's length, you will always have a hazy view of sin in your own life. If you keep God at arm's length, you will always have a hazy view of sin in your own life. It's also true that if you keep sin as something to be minimized or ignored, you will automatically be keeping God at arm's length. Because when God comes to the soul, when we thirst after Him, when we draw near to Him, one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to hear His gentle voice pointing out areas of sin. And we have to listen when He does that. So it begins with listening, but it continues something I might call the double check. So we listen and then we double check. Here's what I mean. After we think we've heard that something is wrong, we feel that prick in our conscience, that little grip in your heart that says that was wrong, you shouldn't have done that, or you should have done something else, we need to double check that the Bible calls what we're feeling sin. Now, this might seem like an obvious thing to us, but it's important because sometimes we might think something is wrong, but then we study the scriptures, we find out, actually, that's not wrong. This is called a broken conscience. It's a broken conscience. It'd be like in the car if an alarm light went off, but the problem is with the alarm light. That thing is not broken. It says the engine's broken, but the engine's not broken. It's fine. The alarm light is broken. Sometimes, and this can happen especially to to people like me who grew up in the church, sometimes the conscience is broken, and we think something is wrong that isn't actually wrong. Not all the time, but sometimes. There might be some of you whose conscience is convicted of something that isn't actually sinful. And and if that's you, I can relate to you. When I was a kid, I was the most legalistic person I'd ever met. And and I was thinking things were sinful that weren't sinful. I remember this distinct memory. One time I was in the car, fairly young age, and my dad had probably told me, let's be still, guys, let's be still. Well, I turned that into this extreme, absurd law. And I remember distinctly, I was sitting there in the car, and I was convinced I wasn't supposed to twitch. Well, you can't actually do that, especially a young boy. You can't actually, but I thought I wasn't. And then I would twitch, and then I would go into repentance. Oh, please forgive me for moving. I'm, I'm so sorry. And my parents were wonderful parents. This was not about them. I just had the ability to turn something that wasn't sinful into thinking it was sinful. So it's important that we take our pricks of conscience to the Bible for a double check or to our parents to help us study the Bible or to our pastors. I, I think this is wrong. Is this wrong? And most of the time, it'll be, yeah, yeah, it is wrong. Here's this verse that helps us define it as wrong. But sometimes it's good to double check before you confess your sin. If you get in the habit of confessing things and they get more and more specific and more and more detailed and suddenly you're thinking, I don't think the Bible talks about this at all. It's good to double check with your parents or your pastor to make sure that your conscience isn't a broken warning light and actually there's no sin involved. So we need to double check. We need to listen and then we need to double check. But if we've double-checked, and the Scripture and godly Christians confirm, yep, that's sin, that's sin, that attitude you're thinking is sinful, it is sinful. That sinfulness, that way you speak that isn't honest, that is sinful. Yes, it is. Looking at that image, yes, it is sinful. You are right. Finally, if we've double-checked, then what do we do? We confess. We confess. Confess means saying to the Lord, that we have disobeyed him or that we've loved something more than him. When my kids were little, I used to ask them these very simple questions, and one of them is, what is sin? 
And the answer they were supposed to give me is sin is disobeying God or loving something more than God. Very, very simple. It's, it's disobeying God, not doing what he says to do, doing what he says not to do, or it's loving something more than God. That's idolatry. Something else is consuming my life. It's like the Red Bull. It's consuming me when I should be going after God. So we say to the Lord that we have disobeyed him. Now, here's the point. When the Spirit pricks our conscience, and our conscience is confirmed by the Scriptures, we must confess our sins. We must say to God, I have disobeyed you. It is extraordinary how easy it is, even for people who grew up in the church, who know better, to skip this. And to skip right to trying harder or ignoring sin. It is extraordinary how easy it is. Even mature Christians, people who have been Christians their whole lives, they feel an experience of conviction. And what do they say? I'm going to try harder next week to not do that. This happens in marriage. It happens with relationships. It happens in relating to mom and dad. I know that was wrong. I won't do it again. What happened? We skipped over confession. We skipped over acknowledging to the one person who we actually sinned against that we sinned against him. I won't do it again. I'm going to try harder next week. I'm determined to grow in that area of my life. Now, those are good things, but they can't happen before we've confessed our sin to the Lord. See how easy it is to skip that step? Oh, I was angry again. I got to stop being angry. Oh, I, I watched that thing again. I'm not supposed to watch. I, I got to stop doing that. Oh, I, I didn't tell the full truth. I got to start telling the truth more. Oh, I, I told that little thing about that friend or that other friend. It was really more like gossip. I got to stop doing that. And we become got to stop doing it people instead of Christians. Christians confess their sin. David Allen again says this with really helpful counsel. He says, when you do sin, you have one of two choices. You can choose to cover your sin. You can hide it, deny it, and lie to God and others and yourself about it. Your second option is to confess your sins, admit it to God, and come clean before him and with yourself. Confession is the order of the day for a believer who sins. Now, I think this is something that we need to get convinced of in our soul. Because we so often skip that step, I, I, I want to urge you that you not skip the regular race to confession. Going to the Lord. Now, I think this passage is primarily and especially about confession to God. That in the moment of our sin, we confess, Lord, that was wrong. Please forgive me. We, we, we say that to the Lord. It takes three seconds to confess to the Lord our sin. It could take longer. But it doesn't need to take longer. Now, I, I think that's primarily what's in view here. But certainly there is something good also about confessing our sins to others. And I think there's a couple of times when that's especially good. One, if our sin was against them and we wounded them, we should confess that to the Lord. And then we should go to that person and say, I have sinned against you. I've harmed you in some way. Now, confessing it to the person is not a substitute for confessing it to the Lord. It's against the Lord that we have primarily sinned. But yes, we should also go to those we've sinned against and confess to them. Another good time to confess it to a, a trusted pastor or a parent is when there is a habit of sin that you can't seem to overcome. Remember what I said about rats and sin? Well, you know, rats don't like the light, 
And sometimes confession to other people is like exposing that rat's nest. And when it's really got a hold of you, you can't seem to overcome it. It's sometimes good to go to another godly Christian and say, I, I'm, I'm caught in this sin. I, I can't seem to overcome it. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? And that person can help you come to see the Lord Jesus and to love him more than you do your sin. I, I, I think that's a valuable practice, but I think especially what I'm wanting to point to here is, is that initial moment of confession to the Lord. Confession to the Lord. So what do we do when we read or look at something online that we shouldn't? We confess our sin. What do we do when we lie or disobey some authority in our life? We should confess our sin. What do we do when we're impatient with a sibling or we gossip to a friend? We should confess our sin. How easy to skip this step, isn't it? So easy to skip it. We just move on with our life. Oh, that wasn't a good day. Try again tomorrow. We skip this step that's meant to draw us near to the Lord. We find ourselves wandering further and further from the fountain that gives life. What should we do when we realize we are living for popularity instead of God's glory? We should confess our sin. What should you do when you are lazy or complaining or when you fail to be generous and servant-hearted and forgiving? We should confess our sin. Sin is the rat's nest of the soul. To deny it, to deny it, to ignore it, is to live among rodents or defilement and to act as if there is nothing wrong. This is what we should do. But why should we do this? Because confession is hard. It's hard to admit you're a sinner. It's hard to admit that you have rats in your soul. Admitting it is hard work. And one reason that we don't really want to do this is because we don't really believe what the Bible says about people who refuse to acknowledge sin. We don't really believe it. We think God will make it work all, all right in the end. We have our little precious rodents of sin, but so does everybody else, and his rat is bigger than mine. We don't really believe the if, if this, of, of this passage, but God says that on purpose. It's those who confess their sin who acknowledge themselves to be sinners, not perfectly, not comprehensively, but faithfully confess their sin, those are the ones that God promises to forgive. Those who refuse to admit their sin, who make a lifestyle of ignoring sin, denying sin, covering sin, acting like sin doesn't matter, those who refuse to admit their sin will face the judgment of God on the unforgiven. We could re reverse this passage and it would be biblically true. Those who refuse to, to confess their sin will not be forgiven of God. Those who refuse to confess their sin will not be forgiven of God. And it makes sense. Can you imagine if a person came to your front door covered in lice, fleas, and rats? Would your dad let him sleep in the baby's room? No. What would he say? We need to get you cleaned up. What kind of person thinks that then they go to heaven having done nothing to acknowledge their sin before God? What person thinks God, with his heavenly home, will say, come right in and bring your rats with you? No. The scripture says that forgiveness is for those who acknowledge their sin, who acknowledge his, I am a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Not the person who says, I, I thank God I'm more righteous than the next guy. Or aren't you glad, God, that I wasn't worse than I was? It's the person who says, I am a sinner. But the second and most important reason that we don't run this race toward confession is that we don't enjoy enough the good news of the promise in this passage. We don't enjoy it enough. We don't see the glory of it enough. The first part of this is a confession condition. The second part is a confession promise. Let's look at that promise right now. I pray this will motivate you to run towards the Lord in confession. If we confess our sins, there's the condition, but here's the promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. John focuses on the character of God. He says that upon hearing our confession, God's character takes over. He does something automatically. He is faithful, a word that brings to mind God's covenant love towards his people. He is faithful. He will do it. He will be faithful to the promise he has made. He has decided based on his own mercy to be a forgiving God. If we confess our sins, God's character takes over and he is forgiving. This is not something he had to promise to or he had to commit to. He does this because he chose to give mercy to sinners. Now, this is not something we should assume as normal or expect. Think, think about it. Countless judges hear confessions every day and those people are not therefore pardoned of their crime. The opposite usually happens. A person goes into a judge and they realize the evidence against them is worthless and they're just trying not to annoy anybody and get a worse punishment. So they say, what do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. The judge doesn't say, good for you. You're forgiven. Go home. No big deal. What if a murderer comes in? Guilty or not guilty? You, you killed this innocent person. Guilty. Good for you. Go home. You're well done. Way to be confessional. No, there's no reason why God has to give this promise. It could be that if you confess your sins, God will give you what your sins deserve. And if you don't confess your sins, God knows it anyway, and he'll give you what your sins deserve. The point is, this is what your sins deserve, punishment. What's surprising about the passage is he says, if you confess your sins that he already knows about and that he watched when they were happening, here's the surprise. He will forgive you. What? If I tell him I was wrong, he will forgive me for the wrong? It's as simple as that. If I won't admit I'm wrong, I won't be forgiven. If I admit I'm a sinner, I'll be forgiven. Really? Is it really that beautiful and that glorious? And if it is, why in the world wouldn't we confess our sins? Why in the world wouldn't we confess our sins? How is this possible? The, the scripture says he is faithful to do this. It also says he is 
right or just. Those words hang together in the scriptures. They're actually the same word in the Greek language, to be just and to be right. It says he's right to do this. This is the right thing for God to do. Now, why is that true? Here we get to the ultimate motivation for running toward confession. God is right to forgive sins because the sins of his people were already punished in the Lord Jesus Christ. The sins of his people were already punished. Look back at verse 7. He's already said this to them. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And here's the good news. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what's he saying? He's saying that if we confess our sins, God is right to forgive us because the punishment for those sins has already been carried out on Jesus. Has already been carried out on Jesus. So it's not just that he's good to do this or faithful to do this. He set it up in such a way that that's the right thing for him to do. That God says, this is the right thing for me to do. This is the just thing. This way justice is served because Jesus' blood has already paid for this sin. In other words, every confession to the Lord is a fresh opportunity for us to enjoy and for God to declare that Jesus' death was enough. And those who refuse to confess their sin are intentionally saying, I don't care about Jesus' death being enough. So confession of sin is an active way we glorify the sufficiency of Jesus' death. Let me say that again. Do you hear what I just said? Confession of sin is an active way we're saying Jesus' death was enough because God says it's right for me to forgive your sins because Jesus paid for them. And a few more verses, he explains even further how this works. Look down at your Bibles, chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's not trying to motivate them to sin, but to run away from sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Think of like a lawyer who represents a guilty client. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. That means the payment for our sins. And not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That means there is no place in the world and no type of person who comes to God based on Jesus that God will not forgive. It's not just those people who were Jewish people at the time of Jesus' birth. It can be Greeks, it can be Americans, it can be Mexicans, it can be Venezuelans, it can be Chinese. Anybody in the world that comes to Jesus and says, I I need you to be my advocate. God forgives them. Now think about the motive this is for confession when you lie to your mom. Think about the motive this is. Here's what's going on. John is saying, look, in the big scheme of things... You're guilty, and you're coming into the courtroom of God's justice. Now, you have two choices when you come into that courtroom. You can say, I don't think my sin's a big deal. I dare you to punish me. That's one option. The other option is you can say, I am a sinner, and I claim Jesus as my lawyer. That's the other option. Those are the only two options you got, because there's no other lawyers looking to represent guilty people. Not in God's courtroom. But this lawyer comes in and he says, I would like to represent you. 
I would like to represent you. I have a righteousness that I will give to you to be your credit, and I'll take on the sinful rats of your soul as my punishment, and I'll do that in your place. How, how do you think about this, this judicial arrangement? You're sitting there with him. He says, well, would, would you like me to represent you? I'll give you my righteousness that'll stand in for you, and I'll take on your sins, and I'll pay for them by my death. And then we go to the courtroom, I'll say, Father, I have already paid for this person's sin, and I've given them my righteousness, so it is right for you to forgive them. Now, when you're standing before God, what would you rather? Would you rather say, I dare you to punish me? Or would you rather Jesus speak for you? Every human stands before God. Every human. There are no exceptions. Every human stands before God, and they are either represented by themselves or they're represented by Jesus. Every human, you and you and you and you, at every age, you stand before God, and there you are at the courtroom, and you are covered in rats from head to toe, and you are that flea-bitten person that comes to the courtroom, and there is only two choices. You can stand there and say, I dare you to say I'm not worthy to come into heaven. I dare you. Or you can say, he's my lawyer. He's my lawyer. I, I, I am a mess. I am guilty. Here's what the passage is saying. <laughs> Those who are willing to say, I am guilty, and Jesus is my lawyer, are forgiven. Those who say, I'm not guilty, and even if I am, I dare you to punish me, will not be forgiven. So when we refuse to confess our sin, we're like a person walking into the courtroom saying, thanks, Jesus, I got this. When we refuse to confess our sins to God, we are like a person walking into that courtroom and saying, I'm good. But when we confess our sins, we are like a person running to him and saying, I've heard that you pay for rat's nest people. I heard that. Can that possibly be true? Is it possible that is true, that you will take on my rats onto your head and that your death will pay for them and that you will give me your righteousness and before I go in that courtroom, you will stand in for me? Is that possibly true? Yes, that is true. What do I have to do? What in the world do I have to do? Well, you have to confess your covered in sin and you have to trust me. That can't be all I have to do. That's all you have to do. Why would we run away from confession when it is the case that if you confess your sins, he is faithful, and because of Jesus, he is just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Why in the world would we skip the step of confession when we get the joy of saying, this is another moment to remember. Jesus Christ is my lawyer. Jesus Christ is my lawyer. I am guilty, but he is righteous. I deserve punishment, but he already took it. I get to be forgiven. Lord, let me experience again the joy of your forgiveness. What's it based on? Him. What do I have to do? Acknowledge I'm a sinner and that I trust in him. That's all I have to do. Isn't that a reason to confess our sins? Confession is a celebration of God's mercy in Christ. Confession is a celebration. It's like a party of God's mercy in Christ. It's sad because we're sinful, but it's happy on the other side of sad because Jesus paid for our sins and God promises, if you 
If you, young man, if you, young lady, if you, 12-year-old, if you, 18-year-old, if you, 72-year-old, if you confess your sins, here's the promise. Because of Jesus, he is faithful and just, he's right, righteous to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I, I, I don't know whether that last phrase means primarily cleansing us from our record of unrighteousness or if it also means continually changing us so that we're more like Jesus. I think probably both are somewhat included because when he cleanses us from our record, he also goes to work in our soul, cleansing our soul. We know that to be true in the scriptures that those who are forgiven are also, God works on their soul. He washes them in their, their real life. He makes them clean. And John is writing these things so that they wouldn't continue to sin. And the more we confess our sin and acknowledge Jesus paid for them, the harder it is to keep sinning. The less we confess our sin, the easier it is to keep sinning. If you go to this lawyer who died for your sin and is standing in for you before God and says, I, I, I have sinned again. You're not going to go out of the courtroom and go look for a fresh opportunity to do that again. You're going to say, oh, I don't, don't want to go do that again. John Stott says it this way, the judge of all the earth cannot lightly remit sin. The cross is, in fact, the only moral ground on which he can forgive sin at all. For there the blood of Jesus, his son, was shed that he might be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Stephen Um comments this way, what is the importance of God's just nature in this context? Why does the text say that he is faithful and just? It does so because... When we confess our sins before the tribunal of God's holiness and judgment, we are effectively and ultimately pleading for justice. If Jesus died on the cross for us, paid the price for our sins, received the penal judgment that we deserved, then God's forgiveness is synonymous with his justice. The payment... The payment has already been made. The punishment was already received. When we confess our sins, God is just in forgiving us because of the work of Christ. He never asks us to pay for our sins because he has provided payment for us in Jesus. God is faithful and just because of what Jesus did on the cross. Let's use our analogy again. Christ took on himself the odious defilement of our record of wrongs. He took the rat's nest of our soul on himself. He was treated as if he was covered in our filth and worthy of utter revulsion from heaven. And he was treated that way. He was thrown out of the city, treated as if he were a rodent in need of extermination, and he was exterminated with our record of wrongs hung on his head. He was stamped out, pierced by the judgment of God against our sin. But now those who believe in him and those who want to honor that his death was enough they confess their wrongdoing. They receive the result of his payment. They are not judged. They are forgiven. They are not rejected. They are cleansed. We bring our rodent souls to the Lord. And what does he do? He washes them clean in the death of Christ. 
confession and the joy of forgiveness. It doesn't make us indifferent to sin. It makes us hate it. It makes us want to live for the glory of God and His glory is seen in those who run a race towards confession. Do not be those who live with the rats of sin unconfessed and unforgiven. Do not be those. Make your life a race towards this glad, happy news. If we confess our sins, he forgives us. In the providence of the Lord, the day that I came home to route out those rats was the same day we had scheduled a bug pest service to keep the insect variety of pest away from our house. But knowing he was coming, he came walking up the driveway as I was literally in the garage trying to deal with the situation. I had a choice to make. I could act cool and say, yeah, yeah, let me just unlock the gate for you. And yeah, if you could just spray the backyard, that'd be great. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here. I don't know why I have the shovel. I could have done that. Or I could think he actually probably can deal with this, maybe more than I can. And I could say, hey, it's actually great that you're here because we have rats. Do you know how to deal with rats? Now, thankfully... I went to the guy as he's walking up the driveway and said, uh, we didn't ask you to come for this, but we have rats. Can you deal with rats? And this guy was amazing. He had stuff in his truck. It was fantastic. He brought it all out. He said, oh, yeah, we can handle this. He said, you really want to look thoroughly, look in your attic. They can get in the attic sometimes. You don't want that to happen. They proliferate, and they get all over the place. Let's make sure. And he told me where to look, and he told him to make sure it's not there. And then he set up all these wonderful traps. He says, here's what you want to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get rid of this problem. We'll handle it for you. No problem. It was magnificent. I mean, the rat killer came to my house. And there I was with the shovel, worthless in dealing with all these potential rat problems. But he said, no, 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 let, let, let me, I can take care of this for you. Now, brothers and sisters, Christ comes to the soul that wants to thirst after him, but is aware of our sin. And we have a choice to make. We can say, maybe just don't look over here. Or we can say, I have a problem. I have a problem. I have a big problem. I, 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 I can't deal with it on my own. Can you deal with it? And then we find he is gracious and merciful and loving. He was saying, I was hoping you would tell me that. Because I have free of charge the solution to your rat problem. And I would love to do it for you. I hope that you'll take this verse, all the glory that it holds, and you'll put it in your pocket, and you'll practice it until you die. I pray that your life 
will be a race towards confession. Because Jesus is right there. He's right there with the solution to that sin and the promise of forgiveness and the gift of free access to God's home. And I pray that because we want to draw near to his presence, we will say, I am a sinner. I have sinned. Forgive me. Let me close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Suppose that my trespasses against my father are not at once taken to him to be washed away by the cleansing power of the Lord Jesus. What will be the consequence? If I have not sought forgiveness and been washed from these offenses by my father, I shall feel at a distance from him. I shall doubt his love for me. I shall tremble before him. I shall be afraid to pray to him. I shall grow like the prodigal who, although still a child, was yet far away from his father. But if with a child's sorrow at offending so gracious and loving a parent, I go to him and tell him everything. Do not rest until I realize I am forgiven. Then, then I shall feel a holy love to my Father and shall go through my Christian career not only as saved, but as one enjoying present peace in God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we can gladly and peacefully enjoy the fountain that he is again and again and again. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself and for, Lord, all of my friends here, Lord, that you would cause us to run this race toward confession, that we would not let the reality of our sin keep us from drawing near to you, You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.